Well, if you uh, do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to uh, encourage you to open it to uh, John chapter 7. If you happen to be using one of the Bibles from the Connect Desk out in the lobby, you'll find this passage on page 521. This is actually week number 21 of our series in the Gospel of John. It has been such a great series so far. Uh, And part of the reason for that is because it's been all Jesus all the time. Uh, We're finishing off chapter 7 this morning by looking at verses 37 to 52. And I entitled this message, Don't Miss Jesus. Uh, The best way I can illustrate what I mean by that is by telling you a story that I've told you before. It's a story from Rico Tice. Uh, Rico Tice is a pastor at All Souls Church in London, and he tells the story of arriving early for a lunch appointment. It was in a a hotel, some sort of banquet room, and he was using the, the back entrance, the stairwell entrance. And so he was waiting in the stairwell just off the main dining room, and there was another man who was waiting there as well. And as English people often do, they sort of just gave each other a polite nod, but didn't engage in any kind of conversation Rico vaguely recognized the man, but he couldn't figure out where it was that he had seen him before. And after about five minutes of awkward silence, another man appeared in the stairwell and said to that other gentleman, Ah, William, there you are. We're seated over here. And it was at that moment that Rico realized that the man he was standing with was actually Prince William, his future king. That's actually the story of our passage today. We're about to meet two groups of people who do not recognize Jesus for who, for who he is. And because they don't recognize him for who he is, they act accordingly. So we're in John chapter 7. We're looking at verses 37 to 52. This is God's word. And this is what it says to us. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came and said to the chief priests and Pharisees, or came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, I remember taking a preaching class uh, on one occasion where the professor was quite adamant that you should never use don't 
in your sermon points. He said something like, never say never and don't say don't. His point was that a lot of people associate the Christian faith with a list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, and you want to avoid adding to that stereotype. So I totally get where he was coming from, but nevertheless, I'm going to unpack this passage by giving you five don'ts that I think we see here. And the first one is, don't miss the significance of what Jesus is saying and doing here. Verse 37 says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, the feast that's being referred to here is the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. We've spent a bit of time exploring the background of that feast over the last few weeks. Because all that takes place in chapters 7 through 10 takes place during that festival or during that feast. The Feast of Booths was eight days long. For seven days, the people of Israel gathered in tents or booths. They offered sacrifices. They feasted together. There were lots of ceremonies that took place, lots of symbolic rituals that they went through. And we have some idea of what they actually did during the feast, how they celebrated that uh, in some of the extra biblical rabbinical writings from that time period. There's something known as the Mishnah. It's a collection of Jewish rabbinical writings from the first and second century. Gives us a bit of a glimpse of what these ceremonies looked like. There's a lengthy section in the Mishnah that's all about the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. It's five chapters long and it contains instructions about everything uh, from what kind of tent you had to set up or, or live in, what was acceptable, which psalms you were to sing during that week. And there was also something referred to as the water ritual. It's given a whole chapter. And here's how it worked. On each of the first seven days of the festival, the priest would go to the the pool of Siloam and he would take a, a golden flask. He would fill that flask with water. He would then march into the temple precincts. He would pour that the water from the golden flask into a bowl. And then he would go to the foot of the altar and he would pour out that water as part of this ritual. And this water ritual was important to the people. There's a a section in in the Mishnah where it basically says that the crowd yelled or shouted at the high priest, hold the bowl higher, we can't see it, right? This was something they wanted to participate in. Pouring out the water at the base of the altar expressed something of their longing and they wanted to see it, they wanted to be part of it. And that water ritual happened every day for seven days. It's now the Eighth day of the feast, the last day. This is the day everyone's packing up. They're going home. And just as that point where everything has kind of reached its climax, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, in order to fully appreciate that, we have to remember just how important water was in first century Israel. If you didn't have water, if you didn't get rain, you wouldn't have crops. And if you didn't have crops, you would die. Water was essential to life. So just think about how audacious a claim Jesus is making here. 
You know, sometimes hear people say things like, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God or Jesus didn't have an exalted view of himself. It was his later followers who made exalted claims about him. That's not what the evidence shows. Jesus celebrates the Feast of Booths with thousands of people who have made their way to Jerusalem. And he stands up on the last day of that feast and basically says, look, everything you've been doing here this week, all of it finds its fulfillment in me. I'm the fulfillment of all of it. So just just think about our own holidays. We have lots of traditions around our own holidays, the way we celebrate them in our culture. So in lots of homes, when they gather together for Thanksgiving dinner, one of the things that, that happens in a lot of homes is, you know, they'll kind of pause and they'll, they'll go around the table. Why doesn't everyone around the table just say something that they're thankful for this year? So imagine if I invited you over for Thanksgiving dinner and as we were, you know, about to partake of the food, I said, hey, you know what? Before we go any further, let's go around the table and why don't you all express something you're thankful for about me? I mean, what would your reaction be? You'd be like, who does this guy think he is? Thanksgiving isn't about him. And that was the reaction the people had to Jesus as well. And they were right. I mean, who did he think he was? So don't miss this. Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and says, all of this points to me. Second, don't we ought to be aware of in this passage is don't ignore your thirst. Now, it's possible we could read a passage like this. We could make observations about the audacious claims that Jesus makes. But let's not miss what's at the heart of his invitation. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. There are really two parts to what Jesus says. The first part is, if anyone thirsts, So again, think again about the context. It's the last day of this great feast. You've been celebrating for seven days straight. Lots of great food, lots to drink. It's been a religious high of sorts. Now you're going to pack up your tent and go home. And Jesus says, all that you've experienced here, all the longings that you've expressed here, all of that points to me. But then he says, and what you've experienced here doesn't have to end when you go home. This is a very bad illustration of what this means. But if you've ever been to the Olive Garden, uh, you might get a sense of what this looks like. So just as you are finishing your meal at the Olive Garden, the, the waiter or the waitress will come around with another menu. Now, it's not the dessert menu. It's a menu that basically says, you know, that pasta that you've been gorging yourself on for the last 20 minutes, the one you paid 20 or $25 for, you can actually take home a second serving of that meal for like five bucks or something. Now, it's been a while since I've been there. I'm sure it's more than $5. But the basic idea is that this experience that you just had feasting like this can be yours at home as well. I said it was a bad illustration, but hopefully you can see the comparison. What Jesus is saying here, just as the worshipers are concluding their week-long celebration, Jesus says you can experience all that your hearts long for on a daily basis through a relationship with me. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of 
living water. This is a continual experience. So Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, is anyone longing for more? And thirst is such a great metaphor to describe the longings that we have. This is not the only place Jesus uses it. You might remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Back in chapter 4, it says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, we all have longings, and these longings are expressed as a kind of thirst. And it's a great metaphor because we all understand what it's like to be thirsty. And we also understand that while there are lots of beverages that we might desire, not all of them satisfy our thirst. I mean, somewhere along the way, we all learn that drinking salt water will not quench your thirst. It'll just make you thirstier. Now, we might not all thirst in the same way or thirst for the same things, but we all thirst. We all have longings. Now, Jesus says what he says in the context of a religious festival, but it actually has application for all of life. Attending a once a year religious festival won't satisfy your deepest spiritual longings. Attending several of them throughout the year won't do it. But again, this has implications in other areas of life. We spend so much of our time and our energy thirsting for something else or for something more. I remember visiting a friend's place back in college and uh, we were there to watch a sporting event of some sort. And I remember we went into the kitchen to get a, a drink and they had one of these fridges with the ice maker on the door. You know, you push your glass against it, the ice pours down. And one of my buddies said, oh man, if I just had a fridge like that, then I'd be happy. Now, he was, he was joking, but isn't that the way so many of us live, right? If I just had this thing, if I just had that experience, if we just lived in a house like that, then I'd be fulfilled, then I'd be happy. If I just had blank, and you can fill in the blank, then I'd be happy or fulfilled. One of the clearest examples of that comes from the life of King Solomon in the Old Testament. Solomon was the wealthiest man in his time. And Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is told from that perspective. Listen to what is said there. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herd and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. 
Then he goes on to say, so I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What Solomon basically says is, look, when I got to the top, I discovered there was nothing there. He tried quenching his thirst with pleasure, with sex with power, with possessions, with wealth. But he still found himself thirsty, longing for more. Now, our story might not be quite as dramatic, but we all thirst, we all quest, we all long. And how often do we try to satisfy our thirst with that which can't really satisfy us? What we think we need is a new kitchen or another vacation or a new experience. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But they reveal our never-ending thirst. We're never satisfied. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. See, that's the second part of this. Jesus doesn't call us to a to-do list. He calls us to himself. You want to satisfy the, the longings of your heart? The only place you can do that is in a relationship with Jesus. Commenting on this verse way back in the 1500s, John Calvin said this. He therefore enjoins us to come directly to himself. As if he had said that it is he alone who can satisfy the thirst of all. And that all who see even the smallest alleviation of their thirst anywhere else are mistaken and labor in vain. See, Jesus enjoins us to come directly to himself. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Don't miss that. This brings us to the third don't from this passage. Don't think you can live the Christian life apart from the Spirit's power. Now, I touched on this a few weeks back, but it is worth repeating. What Jesus offers here is the kind of transformation that comes from the inside out. Streams of living water will flow from your heart or from your inmost being. Now, most of us are used to an outside-in approach to transformation. And there are some benefits to that kind of thing. There are some benefits to developing self-discipline, new habits, A few years back, Charles Duhigg wrote a book entitled The Power of Habit. There were lots of good insights that came from that book about the way habits sort of rewire our brains. If you want to change your life, you need to start by changing your habits. That was essentially the message of the book. More recently, James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. Again, lots of benefits that come with developing good routines around eating and exercise and sleep and time management. I benefited from both of those books, but while developing self-discipline is important and helpful, it can only take you so far. Real transformation starts from the inside. It starts in our hearts. It comes from the spirit that resides, who resides in us. 
John provides the necessary commentary on what Jesus says here, right? Streams of living water are going to flow from you. And then what John says is, now this he said about the Spirit, who those who believed were to receive. See, you can't have those rivers of living water flowing from within if you do not have the Spirit of God taking up residence in you. Moral reformation without spiritual regeneration will not get the job done. Let me just say that again. Moral reformation without spiritual regeneration will not get the job done. So Jesus talks about the danger of external change only in the context of an exorcism. On one occasion, he said this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. There's some fascinating insights in what Jesus is saying there. I love what J.C. Ryle said about these verses. He said, there is no safety except in thorough Christianity. The house must not only be swept, a new tenant must be introduced. The outward life must not only be decorated with the formal trappings of religion, the power of vital religion must be experienced in the inner man. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. This is what I mean by saying you cannot live the Christian life apart from the Spirit's power. Now, maybe we know this, but it's amazing how often we try to to experience moral reformation without spiritual regeneration. Sometimes we try, try to undertake ministry in our own power as well, as if we can do it on our own. It's a great example of the foolishness of that recorded for us in the book of Acts. In Acts 19, it says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That would be a hilarious scene if it were not so tragic, right? Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And we cannot live the Christian life by sheer willpower. Don't think you can live the Christian life apart from the Spirit's power. Fourth don't we can take from this passage is don't form your opinion or your view of Jesus based on popular opinion. This is what we see in verses 40 to 44. It says, when the people heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Now, we've covered this ground before, but this is something Jesus experienced everywhere he went. 
There were lots of opinions floating around about Jesus. Some said this, others said that. Some were saying, well, this must be the Christ or at least a prophet. Others were saying, no, he, no, he can't be. Now, if the people at the time couldn't decide, if they couldn't make up their minds about Jesus, how are we supposed to? Well, this is part of what John chapter 7 is all about. It's helping us understand who Jesus was. I want you to look back at verse 24 in this chapter. And there Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. See, there are several wrong ways to make up our mind about Jesus. Touched on it before, but lots of people in the first century had preconceived ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to be like or what they wanted the Messiah to be like. Many people wanted him to be a political liberator, right? He was going to come and he was going to break the shackles of Rome, free the Israelites from their subjugation to the Roman Empire. Even John the Baptist, the one who so confidently proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world later had his own questions about Jesus. We read about that in Matthew chapter 11, where it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words by his, word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John's sitting in prison and he's wondering, well, maybe Jesus isn't who I I thought he was. I mean, he's not fitting the ideas I had for him. And you can see how preconceived ideas about what the Messiah was supposed to be like would contribute to that in the same way. People who form their view of Jesus based on their projections, what they want him to be like, or form their view of Jesus based on the popular opinions that are floating around, will end up with a distorted picture. I think another way to make to approach this or to make wrong judgments is based on appearances. That's what Jesus says to us. We make our judgment about Jesus in a surface kind of way. And that's what some in the crowd were doing. The reason some of these people rejected Jesus is stated clearly in verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So what was wrong with their reasoning? I mean, many of you know the answer to that. Right? The answer is found in Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So Jesus and his family fled from Bethlehem after Herod issued an edict to kill all the male children to and under. But in terms of his birthplace, in terms of his origin, it was in fact Bethlehem. And the reason I point that out is because even today, lots of people do this very same thing. They dismiss Jesus without ever really investigating his claims. This is why if you ask people what they think of Jesus, many of them will say, oh, I think Jesus was a good moral teacher. Something along those lines. And the reason many people say that is not because they've investigated, but because they've heard other people say that. And it just kind of gets passed on. It's like an easy out. 
So was Jesus a good moral teacher? Is that what the evidence shows? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And if you've read through the Gospels, you know Jesus does this all the time. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or in John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do any of those statements sound like Jesus was just a good moral teacher? Like he just came to pass along some tidbits for better living. Those declarations tell us that we need to reckon with Jesus. Either he was an egotistical madman, not worthy of our attention, or he is who he claimed to be, and in that case, worthy of our worship and our devotion. So don't form your view of Jesus based on popular opinion. There's a final don't we can take from this passage, and that is don't expect affirmation from the elites or from the elite class. There's a bit of a shift that takes place in verse 45. Verses 40 to 44 are taken up with the thoughts of the crowd or the opinions of the crowd. Verses 45 to 52 are taken up with the views or the opinions of the religious elite. So those verses again tell us, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that that does not know the law is accursed. You can see there was a divide between the opinions of the common people and the opinions of the ruling class or the elite class. The officers report back to the chief priests. Chief priests want to know, why didn't you arrest him? They say, look, We've never seen anyone who spoke like this. No one who had this kind of wisdom or spoke with this kind of authority. And religious leaders were incredulous. But notice their reasoning. Look, none of the other authorities believe in him. This kind of divide between the elites and the regular or common people is something you see in lots of areas. So it is the Oscars tonight. I don't really keep track of all the various award shows out there, but I think we all know there's often a huge discrepancy between whether or not a movie was actually any good and whether it's nominated or wins an Oscar, right? I mean, I, I, look at the, I looked at the list this week. I'm like, I've never even heard of most of those movies. There's often a discrepancy between the reviews by the professionals and the reviews of the movie going public. This is similar to what we see here. There's this divide between the the crowd who says this could be the Christ and the religious elites who say he can't be. He's not one of us. Crowd heard Jesus teaching. They witnessed his miracles. They're like, who is this? Could this be the Messiah? And the religious elites rejected Jesus on the grounds that he was from Galilee. 
that none of their fellow elites cared much for him either. You can hear the scorn in their words as they assess the crowd, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And I just want you to notice, they don't deal with any of the actual evidence, right? They just resort to geographical snobbery and name-calling. They didn't think much of Galilee. Modern-day parallel might be the way that the coastal elites in places like New York and Los Angeles sometimes look down on those hopeless hillbillies from middle America. Right? What could they possibly know? We're the experts. We're the elites. And notice that it's their prior presuppositions. He wasn't educated in our schools. He's from Galilee. He's not one of us. He didn't go to our training institutions. Caused them to miss Jesus altogether. And we need to be careful not to make the same mistake. Now, the one exception was Nicodemus, right? We've met him before. I love the way the story of Nicodemus is woven through the Gospel of John. We first met him back in chapter 3. He comes to Jesus at night with a question. He's kind of rebuffed, right? Jesus says, look, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus goes away seemingly not having sort of fully grasped what that meant or maybe grasped what it meant but wasn't quite prepared to do anything about it. We meet him here in chapter 7 and he's the one individual from the ruling class who's honestly wrestling with the possibility that Jesus might be who he claims to be. We meet him one more time near the end of John's gospel. And there we read this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. See that? progression that's happened in Nicodemus's life. And part of it is because he was willing to investigate the evidence. Nicodemus reminds me of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis used to say that he was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And he said that because he considered himself a reluctant convert to the Christian faith. Nicodemus was like that too. He learned from interactions like this one that putting your faith in Jesus would not earn you the affirmation of the elite class or not earn you the affirmation of men. This actually ties in with something Jesus had already said back in chapter 5, where he said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, one of the things that will keep us from coming to Jesus, one of the things that will cause us to miss Jesus is seeking the approval of man. And so somewhere along the way, we have to make a decision. Either we are going to live for the approval of man or we're going to live for the approval of God. And so this passage tells us, don't miss Jesus. Don't miss him because of the opinions of others. Don't miss him because you're not getting affirmed from the elites. And you know, so many others don't believe in him. Don't miss him because you're caught up in your pursuit for so many other things. Don't miss Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his clear claims, his clear invitation to us that if any of us thirsts, that we ought to come to him. Because if we do that, we will experience living waters flowing from within us. And God, we, we, we need that. Often we need that. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to, in those moments of thirsting and longing, that we would turn to you to have our desires satisfied in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.